National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. And don't forget to thank a cop. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Law Matters. Tuesday is Election Day. You need to vote. If you think city council members who assault law enforcement officers should be held accountable, you need to vote. It's too late to mail it in, so drop your ballot off at the official drop-off sites listed on the recorder's website and have your voice heard. Just a reminder, this weekend all the clocks fall back in a majority of the country. It doesn't affect us so much unless you work with people outside of the state. And we want to, I want to thank the Pima Federal Credit Union for representing Law Matters in the L Tour later this month. And if you can't ride and would like to support one of our riders, please go to lawmatters1030.org support page to donate. Our guest today is former U.S. Attorney McGregor Scott. And when I put it out there that he was going to be our guest, I received a lot of questions, concerns, comments. And I tried to put them in somewhat of a chronological order. Not sure I succeeded. But good morning, sir. Thank you for joining us. Well, Sherry, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm I'm going to start with a question that has nothing to do with what all the other questions are about. So if you receive a federal grant while using it, do you need to follow federal rules or you can legally follow state rules? So the general rule is that if you are a recipient of federal money, you have to follow the federal guidelines. And the the key around that was, uh, you'll remember, you know, I, I suspect, Sherry, you're probably not that much younger than I am, but I remember when the feds changed the speed limit to 55 miles an hour on the interstates. I do. And they also changed, and they also changed the, uh, there was a federal law as part of the funding for the federal highway money to uh, lower the blood alcohol content level for drunk drivings to 0.08. And um, the states were, the states, some of the states weren't crazy about that. And there was some, actually some litigation around it. The bottom line was if the feds gave you the money, you got to follow the federal rules. So as a general concept, if the feds hand you the money, uh, you got to follow their rules. Yeah, that would be like common sense. I don't think right. all states do that, though. I'm not well, sure. Well, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I know you sent me the one question you had respect, with respect to Cal OES, California Office of Emergency Services, and, and I don't frankly know the answer to that question, whether they're exempt or not, or whether you know why they're exempt if they are. Uh, but I'm gonna, as I promised you in an email, I'll try to find out. I know lots of people who work there and have some good friends, and I'll do what I can to try to figure that out uh, for your listener. Okay, great. That that would be awesome. I appreciate it. Okay. Let's talk gag orders. I was always under the assumption that if a judge said there's a gag order on this case, that involved everybody in the case. You had to be quiet. And yep. Yep. so I just read today, um, this week that a judge extended the gag order to Trump's attorneys. How How come they weren't in the first one? Well, I don't think that the, the, that the judge anticipated the lawyers would speak out of turn um, about the case in a public setting outside the courtroom. 
And I think the judge was acting in an abundance of caution to include the lawyers. It's not unusual for the lawyers to be part of gag orders, as I'm sure you know, Sherry. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a normal thing where a defendant <clears throat> and the lawyers will, on both sides, will both be uh, bound by the gag order that's been issued by the judge. So it doesn't surprise me that the judge extended it to the lawyers. I am a little surprised it wasn't done in the first place. Okay. And here is another one. Um, somebody wants to know, Trump telling the judge to leave his children alone. Is that appropriate? Is the judge going to listen? Uh, not in this particular. Well, it depends on which. To be honest with you, I'm not sure which case he was referring to in that situation. I think it was the New York State Attorney General civil action that's been brought against them for overvaluing their properties. Right. And my understanding is that the sons are and, and the daughter are part of that. They were they're part of the Trump empire, for lack of a better term, and they're witnesses in the case. So I, I don't understand, frankly, what Mr. Trump was thinking about. Leave the children alone um, when they are witnesses, percipient witnesses <laughs> and, and, are, and are being called before the jury, uh, that sort of thing. So I'm not sure where that was coming from. OK, there was there was another comment Um he told the judge there was enough evidence to dismiss the case. <laughs> what does that mean? I mean yeah, coming from again, him. yeah, you know, the, the problem is there's so many different cases. I think there are four or five. I think five. I think I, a whole five, bunch. The civil one, four criminal plus the civil one in New York State. So it's hard for me to keep track which case he's talking about when he makes these statements. Um, but I do think it's the New York state one. And, um, you know, that's for the jury to decide at the end of the day, not in the middle of trial, um, for the, for the, def- one of the people who's on trial in a civil setting. Let's be clear about that. This is a civil case, not a criminal case. Right. Uh, it, it's not appropriate for someone to comment like that, uh, in the middle of trial when there's a jury that's hearing the evidence. Um, and I'm sure has been instructed by the judge not to pay any attention to any outside sources of information related to the trial. So that's just not appropriate is not how it should be done and that's why i think we have this gag order in effect okay there was another comment that said that there seems to be more and more mega supporters who are admitting guilt to their part in the georgia case how is this going to change things for the foreseeable future well (laughs) nasty comment (laughs) Uh, it's well it's um it's interesting in the Georgia criminal case brought by the, the Fulton County District Attorney around the January 6th events, uh, you know, these people are pleading to basically nothing compared to what they were charged with to start with. And what that tells me is they've agreed to cooperate, that they're going to fully cooperate with the District Attorney's Office in, in continuing to develop evidence around the case that they brought. Which means that, and I, and I think I'm not the first one to say this, there have been lots of articles along this line that the... Uh, um, Mr. Trump, I think, has cause for concern around that, and that I think three people have pled guilty thus far, including one of his own lawyers, and um, and they very well may be turning what we call state's evidence against the former president, that he was in the middle of it, that he knew about it, that he was complicit in what they were trying to do. So I think it is of some concern to him and other lead defendants like Rudy Giuliani and others that these people are, in effect, going to cooperate with the government for lenient sentences, which is what's happened so far with these three. Okay. There's another comment. I'm not sure. It says his attorney did not ask for a jury trial. Does Trump understand that? Do you know which case they're talking about? I, I don't, to be honest with you. I'm not sure. Okay. 
It's been reported that Eric Trump is in the gallery being dramatic with facial expressions and body language. Will that have an effect on the judge, and should he be asked to leave the room? The judge uh, generally will decide whether someone's body language goes too far and is intended to influence the events in the courtroom. And, it would, and if the judge makes that determination that the person is trying to essentially influence the decision makers in the trial, then he'll order that person removed from the courtroom. And so uh, if if the younger Mr. Trump is doing that, then uh, and, it, and it is over the top, it is overly aggressive and trying to influence those who are listening to the evidence and going to ultimately make a decision um, that he can. The judge very well can order him removed from the courtroom. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. Can it be penalized in any way? He, if he's ordered to stop and he continues, he could be in, in contempt of court of a court order. If he's if the judge expressly orders him to stop with his body uh, machinations and facial expressions and he continues to do so in a way that's observable by others in the courtroom, he could be found in contempt of court. And what, what happens with that? Do you go to jail? Is it a fine? What happens? You can you can. It can be, as we've seen already with Mr. Trump, he's been fined for being in contempt of court of the gag order. Uh, but, you know, it, typically what you'll see is there'll be an effort by the judge to deal with the situation by warning. Then there can be a civil fine. Then you, then the judge would have the authority to put somebody in jail if they continue to, to violate the court order. Okay. Let's go on to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Oh, boy. <laughs> Is this the? Is that the uh, the uh, insurrection clause? It, it is. It is. Yeah. And yep. Yep. you know, there's been cases filed in. Do you want me to list them? Colorado, yeah, Minnesota, no, New Hampshire, yeah, all yeah. the. I mean, 14 states. Right. So, my question would be: Did they file these cases too soon? Because he hasn't been found guilty yet. No, because it would be a different standard. Um, he's not on trial for insurrection in either the the special prosecutor case around January 6th or the Fulton County District Attorney. He's not formally charged with insurrection. So the invocation of that clause of the 14th Amendment would not be part of a, an outcome or determination by those juries in those cases. They're asking essentially in all those cases for a court to a judge to decide in a civil context, not a criminal context, okay. that that what Mr. Trump did around January sixth was to lead an insurrection against the government, and and that's why I, I think in all candor they're going to have a difficult time proving that, and thus far I'm not aware of any judge that has found that, um, but but it is it's a completely different thing than the two criminal trials that are happening around the events of January sixth. Okay, I know the cases in Colorado and in, in New Hampshire are moving forward, but when I read the article that was sent to me, it said it is unclear how efforts will fare in conservative states. And I'm just like, how can you pick and choose where the Constitution applies? Doesn't it? Isn't it the law of the land? I well, mean, if they're the, going to go that way. Yeah, but the states at the end of the day have the have the legal obligation to determine who's on the ballot in their state, mm -hmm. uh, not the federal government. So that's why these cases are properly brought in state court to bar someone from the ballot in a specific state. Uh, and and it's being done strategically. It's being done. You know, you mentioned some states that are that are blue, like Massachusetts, but some that that arguably are purple um, or maybe red, like Colorado. 
uh, and uh, in a good year for the Republicans, uh, Red. Um, and and so it's being done strategically. They're not going to do it in California because it has no effect on what's going to be the outcome of the Electoral College in California. The Democrat is going to carry all of California's 53 electoral votes. That's going to happen in 2024. Um, so, so it is being done strategically. It's being done in a calculated way to try to bar him from the ballot in states where he theoretically could win the electoral votes. Speaking of the Electoral College... Do you think it's time that the Electoral College went away? I don't agree with that. That is that's a fundamental shift in the way we've done things in this country for well over 200 years now. And it's a foundational bedrock component of the Constitution. Um, you know, barring some, it, it, those are the rules of the game. You know, going into the election, it's the Electoral College that counts. It's not the popular vote. And everybody knows that. And and so I, I maybe I'm a traditionalist in that way, but I just feel like it's something that's been proven to be the right way to handle things. And it's it's been a part of our system, as I said, for well over 200 years. And we should just leave it alone, in my opinion. OK, I won't touch it. So let's talk well, about tell me what you think. What do you think, <laughs> Sherry? Well, <laughs> no, I'm not going to touch it. Okay. All right. Up to you. Yeah. Um, Trump has been quoted, and I know I sent that. I don't know if you have this in front of you. He said that if if there is a violence, if there is violence, that's on the people who take up my words and commit the violence. It's not on me, Donald Trump. How do you interpret that? Well, it depends on what those words were or are. I think they were and, referencing what, what was said on that stage that morning when all those people got yeah. up there and basically said the yeah. same thing. Yeah, and told them to go up there and stop the count. Right. So that's why, I mean, that's, those those words are now being used in these lawsuits that are being brought in the different states to uh, bar him from the ballot for having led an insurrection. And and the argument is, I'm not saying it's it's a it's a winning argument necessarily, but the argument is, that the words he used at that time, at that location, to that audience, uh, were, in essence, an insurrection to stop the electoral count, the electoral vote count that was happening in the, in the, uh, in the Senate and the House of Representatives at that time. And um, it, it's pretty hard. I think you've got a difficult time for him to distinguish his words from the actions that follow from those words, if, in fact, they were found to be insurrectionary. That'd be like Al Capone telling his his mobsters to go kill somebody, and they go do it, and they, hey, you know. Right, I, right. Well, <laughs> it's, it's not on me. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it, that, that's exactly, you can't separate the two. You can't in a, in a good, in a legitimate, um, common sense way. So, it, it, if you know, let's, let's assume he'd said, go up there and lynch Mike Pence, and they got up and done that. Not heaven forbid that should have happened, but let's assume for a second that that's what happened. You can't separate the words from what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the telephones that were being used, some of them were burner phones that he was communicating with people with. Has that been found to be a fact, or is that just a rumor out there? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't have any idea on that particular issue. Okay. Well, I know... I think he was the only one on that stage that actually took an oath to defend the Constitution. So, I think that's I think that's right. 
Yeah. So what he did was more egregious than what, you know, like Giuliani and whoever else was there, well, Stone. Well, it, so, so let's talk about that for a second. So uh, Giuliani did. Giuliani did take an oath to defend the Constitution because he was a high-ranking official in the Justice Department in the Bush, or pardon me, in the Reagan administration. Okay, you're so right. he did. So Giuliani falls in that same category. Um, I, I, to my knowledge, they're the only two that were on the stage that had taken an oath, I think. I'd have to really take a look at exactly who was up there and who was speaking, but those two come readily to mind okay. as people who did, in fact, take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. Okay, using the media and social media to attack witnesses, the judge, and future jury members... What's going to be done with that? Well, I think that's the foundation of the of the gag order that's been put in effect by the civil judge in New York State. And I, I think before long, if he starts going after the folks in the criminal cases as well, you're going to see the same thing. Because that just does not have a place to threaten judges, to threaten jurors, to threaten the prosecution. That's just not does not have a proper place in our system. And he's he's going to have his day in court, as any citizen would. He's going to have his ability to present his own case. He's going to have the right to cross-examine witnesses. He's going to have the right to use the court's process to propel testimony from the other side. He's going to have all the rights that are guaranteed to our citizens in each of these actions. So to go after on a personal level the judge, the jurors, the the prosecution is just wrong. Uh, And it's not how we do things in this country. So do you think this, what happens in this case is going to set a precedence for future cases? It's the first time we've ever had a former president under indictment, and here we have four separate criminal cases that have been brought against him. Um, it is it's going to be unprecedented. It's going to be precedent-setting no matter what becomes of all of this for that reason alone, that this has never happened before in the history of the republic. And so no matter what the outcome is, no matter what comes of all of this, it, it is going to be a precedent-setting thing uh, going forward, no matter what. Um, now, there's so many hypotheticals here. There's so many different routes that this could go down. Uh, It's mind-boggling. So let's assume he is, let's let's assume he's elected to a second term in 2024. And shortly thereafter or sometime after that, he's found criminally liable and sentenced to prison. I mean, what do we do then? (laughs) It's just, it's all unprecedented. It's never been done before. Even the Nixon stuff, he had the you know he had the goodwill to to resign and get out of the way when the time came, um, and and uh, because he would have he probably would have been prosecuted had he not um, once he left office, uh, but he got out of the way and Jerry Ford, bless his soul, uh, pardoned him because it was the right thing for the country to do at the time to move forward from Watergate. But this just keeps going on and on and on. And um, I don't see Mr. Trump in any way voluntarily leaving the stage anytime soon. So, you know, the short answer to your question, Sherry, it's a long-winded answer to a to a short-answered question, which is it is absolutely unprecedented because it's never happened before. What would the ideal solution be? <clears throat> um, that's a great question. I think I think the. Uh, the ideal solution to this would be that Mr. Trump would step aside and Mr. Biden would pardon him and the governors of those respective states would pardon him so that we can move forward as a country and so we can put this all behind us and move on.
Don't you think a pardoning him would fracture the country further? I don't know. I don't know. Because I remember when when Ford did it, and there were so many people that are like, come on, he committed a crime. You know, if I did that, I'd be in jail. So many people feel that way. Well, they felt that way at the time, but I think with retrospect and time and the, the, what, almost 50 years that it's been since it happened, people have taken a different perspective, which in hindsight, it was the right thing to do. Um, and I remember a friend of mine tell me that um, he, he was at a, in D.C. Uh, he worked for me at the Department of Justice. He was in D.C. He was at a book fair with Bob Woodward. And he asked Bob, somebody asked Bob Woodward, what's the one thing you got wrong at the time, but in hindsight, you got you see it differently. And he said, Jerry Ford pardoning Richard Nixon. At the time, I was just shocked. I couldn't believe it. But in hindsight, uh, it was the right thing to do for the country. So in the moment, it may have that immediate effect. But I think in the long term, it would be the best thing for this country to be able to move forward. Yeah, I respect Bob Woodward. He's a good guy. Well, he, he generally gets the story right, and he gets people to talk to him in an amazing way um, <laughs> on the inside story of what's happening on different things. Yes, he does. And I've I've bought several of his books. He's he's a good reader. Yep. Yep. Okay. Former state representative and candidate for the Arizona Secretary of State, Mark Fincham, an oath keeper and January sixth attendee, has already accused the Arizona current Secretary of State of rigging the twenty twenty four election. <sighs> Okay, they they have brought so many lawsuits, and they were all, you know, there was nothing found that would say that, you know, Arizona rigged the election or did illegal things to sway the election. What do you say about this type of activity and verbiage? Well, the, the part of the fundamental problem we had in 2020 was it was the first election conducted in this country principally by mail. It was by mail-in ballot, as opposed to the old-fashioned go-to-the-polling-place, cast-your-ballot. So it was something new and different. And while there's no doubt in my mind there were some games played, in places like California, we have ballot harvesting, where anybody can go and turn in anybody else's absentee ballot. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind there were some games played with that. Every time a lawsuit was brought in the context of the 2020 election by the pro-Trump people in the various states, there was no evidence. There was no evidence, and the judges tossed them, to include Trump appointees as federal judges. So there was a lot of smoke around it, but there was no fire. There was not enough, certainly, to change the outcome of the election itself. And so to perpetuate this story is really a disservice, I think, to the country. And I contrast that again. Let's go back to Richard Nixon again, this time in 1960, where he had he had quantifiable, legitimate beefs about the, about the count in places like Illinois and Texas that would have thrown the election in his column. Uh, and yet he chose to let it go and move on because it was the right thing for the country. And that with it, that it was a time when we were at the height of the cold war with the Soviet union, we needed to have a unified national representation going forward. And, and he was, he did not want to throw the country into disarray for months for a recount or some, some reconsideration of the ballot in 1960. You stand that in contrast to the way Donald Trump has dealt with this situation and his, his acolytes, like your, your, uh, representative and secretary of state candidate, all they're doing is, is causing problems. We've got enough issues to deal with right now on the international stage with China, with with Russia's war in Ukraine, with this Hamas action against Israel, 
We've got enough to deal with on the international stage that we cannot afford to have essentially um, miss, because that's all they are, about a stolen election from 2020 being allowed to continue to perpetuate and, and, and um, damage the outcome in 2024 when there's no evidence. There's no evidence. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. I know harvesting in Arizona is not legal. You can't do it. Everybody has to. Well, it's the way it should be. It's the way it should be. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. And, and you know, we, the problem in California, we've had the last couple of election cycles, is we've had this major uh, uh, mail-in or, or, you know, people delivering absentee ballots. And, um, and you'll have the Republican candidate ahead on election night. And then as the counts continue over the next 30 or 60 days, it takes forever in California to get the final ballot done. The Democrat somehow winds up ahead. That's how the, the Republicans got wiped out in 2020 in the House of Representative races in California. There, was, there were countless Republicans ahead on election night, but then somehow over the intervening days, the Democrat caught up and passed and won ultimately because it takes so long to get the voting and the counting done in California. Yeah, we have... Um... I think all the states should follow Arizona as far as we've been mailing in ballots for a long time. And and our former recorder representative was was amazing. And she had it down to a science. And I've had people call me and say, hey, answer these questions because I'm looking at your signature and it doesn't quite match. And, you know, verifying that it's your vote. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can follow your ballot through the system. They'll give you right. a code. Here's your, here's your, you know, and they'll send you an email. Your right. B two or whatever it is being counted. And I just think it's a easy way to easy way to vote, and I like it. So I hope they don't take it away. We're going to take a quick well, break and hold that thought because we're going to continue this conversation when we come back. Lawmatters1030.org is a nonprofit that needs your support in El Tour de Tucson, either by riding a bike or walking in the 5K. To support us while we support law enforcement, please go to Lawmatters1030.org support page to sign up. We'll see you there. This is JL reminding you the City of Tucson election is vote by mail only. Ballots will be mailed October 11. Please look for your ballot, fill it out, and drop it in the mail by October 31st. In-person ballot drop-off locations are listed on the county recorder's website. Let your voice be heard. Vote for a cleaner, safer Tucson. This is Deputy Chuke with Pima County Search and Rescue, reminding you that infants and toddlers do not experience heat as adults do. Consider this when bringing your young ones on a hike in temperatures of over 80 degrees. You do not want to risk that child having heat stroke or being arrested for child endangerment. If you're thinking of a trek through nature, plan ahead, look ahead, and use your head. Your future depends on it. Save your phone's battery life so when you get lost, we may contact you. Wearing bright colors that can be seen from a distance helps the effort. 911, what are you reporting? Um, I'd like to report a break-in into my car. I came out this morning and my laptop bag is gone and some of my books are gone. Are any of the windows broken or anything like that? Nothing's broken. Did you leave your vehicle unlocked or did you lock it before you went inside? I thought I locked it, but I I don't think I did. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get an officer out to you as soon as I can. 
This doesn't have to be you. Remember to lock it or lose it. This has been a message from the Marana Police Department. LawMatters1030.org is a nonprofit that needs your support in El Tour de Tucson, either by riding a bike or walking in the 5K. To support us while we support law enforcement, please go to LawMatters1030.org support page to sign up. We'll see you there. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is former U.S. Attorney McGregor Scott. And we're talking about mail-in ballots and the system that they use. And I guess different states are are just trying it out. And it's, you know, trial and error. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that historically we've had absentee ballots as part of the process. But there was something sort of reverential about going to a polling place and casting your ballot. I remember when George W. Bush was up for re-election in 2004 and I was a United States attorney here. And, you know, my future was dependent on the outcome of that election. And my wife and I took our three sons down to the ballot, ballot place with us. They were all, you know, underage, but they went with us because this is what we do as Americans. We vote. And there was just something about that, standing in place at a polling place, waiting your turn to cast a ballot. And and I think we've got to come up with ways to fix the system. If, this is the, if the mail-in is what we're going to go with, which seems to be the future, we've got to come up with ways to make sure that we get the, the counting done in places like California, like within a week, not 30 days, not 60 days, which is what's been happening in California. And, and you know, to go back to the Trump analogy, uh, what I what I predicted before the 2020 election was there's going to be some window of time on election night where Donald Trump is ahead and he's going to think he's going to win. And then in the succeeding days, because of this mail-in ballot thing, the Democrat, that Biden would catch up and pass him and, and he would win. And sure enough, and then Trump would cry foul and that this was stolen and all this stuff. And that's exactly what happened. He was There was about an hour and a half on election night where it looked like Donald Trump was going to win. And I'll never forget because my wife, she, she said to me during that hour and a half that the Chinese yen is in free fall right now. <laughs> and I, and I, I said, well, that's all I need to know about who should win this election. Um, but... Uh, you know, so, so, but that's exactly what happened. And, and if, we're, if this is the path, if this is the route we're going to go down, we've got to come up with a far better way of doing it to make sure that the ballots get counted timely. And, you know, like Florida had it all together. They were like Florida was, was completely counted up to date from all the ballots that came in before election day. And so when they, when they close their ba- when they close their, their polling places on election night, very shortly thereafter, they were able to give a projection of what the, Total vote was, and, and California, it took weeks and months to get it done. And so if we have this disparity in some of the largest states, that just doesn't work for me because it just creates this, this opportunity for there to be this um, stolen election scenario that was pitched by Mr. Trump after 2020. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not in any way doubting the outcome because I think Mr. Biden was elected in 2020, but uh, but it just creates the opportunity for there to be gamesmanship and playing of things um, that's, that we've seen all too often since the 2020 election. Absolutely. And I think when you mail your ballots in, if they start counting them so that on Election Day when the polls close, they only have to count the ones that are coming in from the polls. Right. Exactly. It would exactly. expedite everything and there'd be less chance for BS going yes, on. But, but in California, we seem incapable of doing that. And, <laughs> and I'm telling you, it, it is a disaster. It just takes weeks and weeks and weeks. And, and um, 
you know, I, I, I was at a deal with Gav, with Governor Newsom, and I, what I wanted to ask him was, okay, you got this was when we had our you know one hundred billion dollar surplus last year. Mm-hmm. Are you going to spend any of that money to make sure we get the counting done more quickly here in California? But the opportunity did not present itself uh, because it really it just it really does a disservice to democracy and and the way this country has worked for all these years that we get these. You know, ha, ha, so how do they know in eighteen you know whatever eighteen ninety six that McKinley's won on election night? How do they know that? But we don't know <laughs> exactly. Two thousand twenty, right? With the technology we exactly? have. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It, it just yeah. doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't. So it needs. So if we're if that's the route we're going to go down, we've got to, states have to spend the money to do what Florida has done, which is fix this system and make it right, so that everything that comes in ahead of time is counted, so that when they when they declare their vote total when the polls are closed on election night, they're up to speed. They're ready to go. Okay, let's let's move on to the next question. I think it's a common. It says, at what point is free speech okay in tampering with an elect an election a factor? Would would the, I think this person is saying would um this scenario about, you know, the election was stolen and in They've already rigged the 2024 election. It's just stirring the pot because there's no there's no grounds for it. Should that be free speech or should somebody say, hey, enough's enough? Well, the 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 it's long past time for people to say enough is enough on the 2020 election results. And because they are what they are. And Mr. Biden was elected and he's the president. Now, it pains me to say that, but it's true and it's accurate. <laughs> now, um, the, the, the going back to the we talked about this the last time I was on your show, Sherry, the, the two indictments that deal with the January 6th events. That's why I think that they should not have been brought. I think that the, the, the documents case out of Merrill Largo was the true prosecution that should have been brought by the special prosecutor. He should have left good enough alone. Because there's too much of that First Amendment stuff. It just you know, it, he's trying to make sure, and he's trying to you know, there's just too many, there's too much gray around that for yeah. a criminal prosecution in that context. And so you know, I can see it then, but but every 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 loss to go back to what I said earlier this morning, every lawsuit that was brought by the Trump proponents related to the 2020 election results, they produced no evidence, no evidence, none, and every single t- lawsuit was tossed by judges to include. Trump appointed federal judges because there was nothing there. And so at some point, you know, whoever the remaining elder statesmen of the Republican Party are, I don't know who those are anymore now that, you know, Romney and others have stepped aside and McCain's dead and otherwise. But um, uh, I wish some of those people were still around. (laughs) Well, I I, got to tell you, I read a book about the 60 election not too long ago. And on, on on the Democratic side, you had John Kennedy, obviously, Lyndon Johnson, um, Harry Truman, you know, just th- these these bigger than life kind of figures. On the Republican side, you had Richard Nixon, Dwight Eisenhower, Nelson Rockefeller. You're like, wow, you know, I mean, holy cow! And, what and do we they got all today? work together. We got Biden and Donald Trump. Yeah, and they got things done. They got things it's done. Just, We're a concept. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, the, but the point is that somebody needs to step up and say enough is enough on this because it is, and all it's doing is damaging the outcome results for the 2024 election for the Republicans by continuing to pitch this theme. Okay. Gerrymandering voting districts. Is this considered rigging elections? So 
there's a long history, a long and, and, and valued history of gerrymandering in this country. And it goes back to, I think, Massachusetts uh, when the governor was named, um, it was named Jerry, J-E-R-R-Y. And he came up with this thing to set up, split up the, the districts in Massachusetts, and, it was, and, and hence the term gerrymandering. And so it goes all the way back to the founding of the republic. Um, now, if it's done legally, and it can be, uh, Philip Burton, before he died in 1980, uh, in, in the early 80s, drew up this gerrymandering of California that was unbelievable, that gave such an advantage to the Democrats in the, in the process. But as long as it's legal... And it does not violate any of the equal protection clauses of the Constitution, like, you know, minorities are disproportionately underrepresented, you know, whatever. As long as there's no legal issues around it, gerrymandering is a time-honored tradition in this country. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. I, I knew people like to redistrict, you know, for the purpose of a political party, but it, I didn't know it was a... Long time, you know, and I didn't know Jerry was the name of the person who created it. it yep, that's where the term came from, gerrymandering. Um, awesome. It was. I, I think he was. I think he was the governor of Massachusetts. I think that's right, going all the way back um, to the beginning of the republic. Can we talk about terrorist groups? I had somebody sure. ask what what activities would constitute, classify, and or define a terrorist group according to our government and the Constitution. So I actually looked it up and, and printed it out. What say you? So it's interesting. There, there's there are two uh, two different categories. There's international terrorism, which is illegal under United States law, and there's domestic terrorism, which is not. Um, there is no law that touches on domestic terrorism per se in the United States. You will not find those words anywhere in the in the code. International terrorism is, and it's defined. And terrorism is defined as, you know, typically a physical attack of some kind intended to change the, the, the policy of a government. So, you know, one of the most uh, perfect examples of that was, you remember um, the bombs on the trains in Spain after we invaded Iraq yes. in 2003? Those were clearly designed to, there was an upcoming Spanish election, they were clearly designed to affect the outcome of that election, and they did. The, 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 new Span the prime minister of Spain, who had committed troops to Iraq as part of the coalition, uh, was defeated, and the guy who came in pulled him out. So that was an act of terrorism under United States law, although it's, it's Spanish in origin. But I use it as an exemplar of an of a act undertaken to change the policy of a government. That's the definition of international terrorism. 9-11 was an act of international terrorism that could be brought properly under U.S. law because it was intended to cause the United States to pull out of the Middle East. That was their intent uh, when they undertook those actions. So international terrorism is well-defined. Domestic terrorism is not. And for many years, when I was in the Justice Department, we th those were words we did not touch, domestic terrorism. We did not go near those things. I had lunch with uh, my successor as U.S. attorney here a few weeks ago, and he told me that they now have specially dedicated assistant U.S. attorney positions to address domestic terrorism, which is a sea change. And that tells you what to, how this administration views this, that, you know, domestic terrorists, white supremacist groups, otherwise pose, frankly, more of a threat than international terrorism. And uh, I think that's misplaced completely. Uh, it's not, it's wrong. I mean, we look at Hamas in Israel right now. I mean, that is, a, that's an act of terrorism. 
if ever I've seen one, designed to change the policy of a government, to get the Israelis to pull out completely uh, of Gaza and, and, for, and just stop what they were doing. So it's a real sea change that's gone on with this in the last few years within the Biden administration. So the comment went on to say, should Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, the KKK, and other disruptive hate groups be considered terrorist organizations and their members be considered terrorists? Legally, no. If we look at the definition of terrorism, again, to say it only applies to international terrorism under the U.S. Code. There is no domestic terrorism. And so there are, there are, I'm sure there are plenty of other statutes that can be applied if the KKK is killing people or lynching African Americans or whatever it is. There are plenty of other statutes that can be applied, but the, but the, but the, this, the, the, the unique um, terrorism crime only applies to international terrorism, not domestic. Okay, this um, new domestic terrorism thing that you're talking about, is that going to become a law, a rule, a policy? No, what? It, it's it's a policy of the Biden administration carried out by the Justice Department to dedicate prosecutorial resources to focus on what they're calling domestic terrorism groups. Now, again, they're not going to be looking at uh, at crimes of terrorism per se because there is no domestic terrorism crime. It's only international. But they will be looking at other things like, you know, beating up minorities, um, physically assaulting them because of their minority status, those kinds of things that, that are separate and independent crimes under the federal statutes. Yeah, that seems to be something that's been happening. The 60-pound Asian lady got beat up by somebody who's <laughs> 300-pound person. It's like, right. oh, my God, you know, what's the matter right. with you? So the Oklahoma City bombing, mm-hmm. how, did, how does that get classified if it's not a domestic terrorist? They were, uh, Timothy McVeigh and the others were charged with uh, however many hundreds of counts of murder. Uh, there were federal employees in that building. It was a federal facility. And so that conveyed jurisdiction on the feds to, con- to prosecute them for murder. And that's what they were prosecuted for, not to, not terrorism. It, yeah, it's, I it's remember the news term. outlets were, you know, this is domestic terrorism. And yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a colloquial term that people use to talk about incidents like that. But in the, it's strictly in the legal setting under the United States statutory code, it is not. There's no such thing as domestic terrorism. In that, in the Oklahoma City situation, it was murder against federal employees and the bombing of a federal facility. Okay. Not domestic terrorism in terms of formal charges that were brought. Okay, let's go to the Sixth Amendment and. There's nothing specific in here. It said, would riots that are held daily, that includes setting buildings on fire, looting stores, torching squad cars, sending death threats to a judge and jury where the National Guard needs to be called in, be considered an act of terrorism? Would any trial under these circumstances be considered a fair trial according to our Sixth Amendment rights? So again, uh, there would not be formal charges because those. I'm assuming this is a domestic to the United States situation. Um, and you know, frankly, when I when I saw that question that you sent across to me in advance, I thought of Portland, Oregon, and all that happened there uh, with the federal courthouse. And um, uh, you know, it, 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 measures can be taken by a judge to ensure a jury is sequestered, that a jury is not aware of what's going on in terms of other events outside. Uh, but if a jury is is being impacted by 
uh, you know, rioting or uh, looting or uh, whatever it is that may be happening, then that does begin to impinge on the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. And a judge can take appropriate action to declare a mistrial and start over again if it rises to such a level as that. Um, the, the the one thing I would say specifically about the Portland, Oregon situation I, at, at that time, I was U.S. attorney here in Sacramento. Billy Williams was the United States attorney in Portland. He's a dear friend of mine. He would send us every night. They would go out and walk the perimeter the next morning uh, of the damage that was done to the federal courthouse. And, um, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of Gavin Newsom's. I don't think that's any secret. But one thing I always give him credit for is he deployed the National Guard immediately in California in, in early June of 2020. The Oregon governor refused to do that because she was afraid that they might have weapons. Oh, you know. If, if if they had done that in Portland, Oregon, the whole thing would have been shut down immediately. It would have been over because that's what happened in California. As soon as the National Guard showed up, it was over, the riots in 2020. And so I give Newsom credit for that because he was not afraid to pull the trigger on what was a, probably a difficult decision based on his constituency. But the governor of Oregon, there was a shameless act to not deploy the National Guard to protect downtown Portland in that setting. Absolutely. It should have been happening right away. No hesitation. There's a comment in no. here, and it's about the the killing of Natalie Holloway. Do you remember her? Oh boy. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I, I I've read some headlines here and there, but I don't know a lot about that case. Well, the question is: Is there ever a time where American laws follow a citizen onto foreign soil? Um, yes. And the, the 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 United States government generally has um, uh, what I would call uh, widespread jurisdiction. So, for example, the American embassies in Africa that were bombed by Al Qaeda in 2000, uh, 1999. Um, you know, there was jurisdiction over those, even though they were in a foreign country. There was jurisdiction over that. Um, the the U.S. laws uh, do follow Americans overseas to some extent. Um, it's not exactly clear because it really depends on what the Supreme Court is doing on any particular day of the week. But uh, in large measure, there are protections um, and also jurisdiction over criminal acts by American citizens in foreign countries. Because uh, the question went on to say, why would the murder of Natalie Holloway not have some type of consequence for his murderous actions here in America? Should we consider implementing a law to cover this type of behavior? Well, that action, that was that was uh, a local jurisdiction issue. Uh, there was no federal jurisdiction. She was not a federal agent. She was not a federal employee. It was not a federal property that was in any way involved. So that was that was purely um, uh, an issue for that country in the in the Caribbean. Um, so there there is no they, they can't be. They can't be cross charged. They can't take what happened there and prosecute it here. But what they could do is if there was some other action that the United States had jurisdiction over or a local jurisdiction the United States had jurisdiction over, they could use the evidence of that case against Natalie, Holl- Natalie Holloway um, in in the local prosecution as similar evidence. Um, it's, it's a long, complicated legal theory called similar acts by the defendant that could be used. But But in terms of charging... Um, there's nothing that could be done because it was a purely local matter. Okay. There was a comment sent over 
that says a lot of foreign entities who are not allies of America come here pregnant to have their children and go back to where they came from. Mm-hmm. So, so they raise yeah. their child to be a, bi- a biased person and then they send them back to America as a plant. I don't know if there's any foundation on this. Um, well, there's there's certainly a foundation to um, pregnant women coming here, especially the, there was a big deal here in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area a few years ago now, uh, where I think they actually brought a prosecution around it, where they're bringing pregnant women from China to give right. birth here in the United States so they'd have U.S. citizenship. Um, and, and obviously, you know, I don't know that it's by design necessarily, but there's a lot of pregnant women coming across that southern border right now. Yes. Um, and, you know, they get here and their kid is born here, then everything changes for them. Their entire life changes. Um, so, so there is something to that, whether they're plants or not. I've never seen any evidence about that. Um, you know, we can speculate all we want, but in terms of actual evidence, I've not seen anything. I used to live in Rancho Cucamonga area and the people that lived across the street, she was the secretary to the mayor and the house next door was rented out. And, there, and I couldn't understand why all these pregnant people were there. And then the ambulance would show up two, three times a week, and you'd never see that person again. And I was pregnant myself, so I wasn't paying too much attention. And it wasn't until years later I'm going, oh, my God, I know what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it yeah. just... No, that's exactly, exactly what it was, especially, you know, it, this, this Chinese thing got a lot of press at the time, a few years ago, um, as I said, in the San Francisco Bay Area. That that's exactly what they were doing. They're bringing these pregnant women over from China so they give birth here so the child would have U.S. citizenship. Let me ask you something about California. Do they practice bail reform there? <laughs> yeah. So we had, uh, during COVID, there was, there was zero bail uh, across the state, which was just crazy. And then we wonder why the crime rates went up. Exactly. And then, um, and then a number of jurisdictions um, have... Uh, enacted kept that in place zero bail like los angeles for example and um and then in addition there there's been a, a law passed um that was overturned by a vote of the statewide uh, voters in a proposition that was set zero bail across the board except for um crimes of uh, severe violence like murder and um but there's still you know the supreme court has ruled that bail in and of itself is unconstitutional because it if you're a poor person, you sit in jail. If you're a rich person, you're out on bail. And it creates a disproportionate impact on equal protection. So it, it, right now, it's it's kind of up in the air. It's kind of a mixed bag. Some some count, we're, we're, We do everything by the county level here, generally, okay. um, in terms of bail. And uh, um, most, um, it's it's really a mixed bag. Some counties are, have zero bail. Some do not, in terms of where we are right now. Well, I know it's it's had an effect on our area for sure. Let me ask you this. Does it make sense that someone can be on the do not fly list, yet they are allowed to legally buy a gun in America? I don't know enough about that. I didn't. I saw that question when you sent it across. I don't know a lot about the uh, implications of the no-fly list other than the no-fly list, that you cannot fly on an airplane. Right. Um, it does. It. I mean, if I take that statement at face value, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Without some further research, you know, I'll, I'll give you a classic example. We flew with our uh, family when uh, for George Bush's second inauguration in 2000, January 2005, and our then uh, four-year-old, three-year-old son was on the no-fly list. <laughs> so, IRA what kind of kids are you raising? Sky, right. Yeah. So. 
so we had to work through that and get him on the plane with us. Um, but, but, you know, it, there's a lot to the no fly list that is, um, speculative, I guess, uh, you know, there's, there's people who are hardcore people should not be on it and who are, who are on it and should be on it. There are some people who just by happenstance, they have the wrong name. So the no fly list in and of itself does not answer the question for me. It's gotta be more complicated than that. What would, what would put, put a person on the do not fly list? Well, it's a, it's a it's a homeland security thing. It's a TSA thing. It's an FBI thing where they um, put the names together of people who are deemed to be terrorists uh, in the estimation of some agency. Um, and and I think they've done a better job than they did, for example, with our son. That they've got it now. Hopefully, some dates of birth and some other things with it. It's been almost twenty years ago now. Uh, and um, it's just. It, it, it's kind of a, it's sort of a random thing. It's just, you know, if you want to fly, we're going to interview you before you get on the plane is what it boils down to. So in your son's case, that that would be discerning, wouldn't it? You know, you're pulled aside and let we need to talk to you, <laughs> take off well, your shoes. It was, it, it was, it was, you know, once we sort of explained it, you know, this is Spencer Scott, you know, that was kind of the end of it. But, um, uh, you know, it was at the time I thought they don't have dates of birth with this, with these names. I mean, it just seemed really odd to me. But yeah. that's what we dealt with. Yeah. Well, interesting stuff. And yep, yep. so words of wisdom moving forward, this coming election, what advice do you give people? <sighs> what advice do I give people? I would say look at who can who can win um, and is a legitimate candidate. Um, my wife and I are taking a long look at Nikki Haley right now because she's performed very well in both of those debates. Uh, she's got a nice mix of having been a governor as well as the rep- representative of the United Nations in terms of foreign policy experience. Um, and she, and if you look at the polling, she wins. She beats Joe Biden hand down, hands down. So I would be taking a long look at Nikki Haley right now, if that would be my advice. Yeah, I think she's she's doing really well. And there's going to be another debate on Wednesday, I think. Right. Okay. And I think that's right. Yeah. What was your impression when um, Pence dropped out? I was not surprised. I mean, he just uh, there was no there was no room for him. Um, he, he he was trying to both be take credit for the for the positive aspects of the Trump administration while also taking credit for shutting down the January 6th stuff. And, and that just wasn't going to work. Yeah, so I think not... at the end of the day, he was he, there was just no place for him to go. And what about some of the other people that are running Chris Christie? Yeah, I think Chris is going to stick around until New Hampshire. Um, but some of the others, Aza Hutchinson and the, the fellow from North Dakota, and some of the others, I, I think I think we need to consolidate behind one candidate who is the alternative to Trump. Um, and I think that's Nikki Haley right now. Yeah, I think you're right. And somebody sent this to me this morning. The verb phrase Trump means to concoct with the intent to deceive. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it kind of fits. He's living up to his name. Yeah. What the heck? Yeah, I'll leave that one alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. yeah, I thought you would. Well, I actually have more questions here, but we're totally out of time. I want to thank you for coming on and, and going through all this sure. with me. Um, no, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, it's, it was definitely an array of, of uh, emails sent in. So you have a great well, weekend. Well, we spur some interest. Yeah, yes. I, we will do that. And uh, <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful here in Northern California, so we're going to have a nice weekend. All good. Okay, have Thank a great weekend, much. and thanks so much for All coming right. on. We'll talk to you later. Shop local, stay safe.